written in this world. The numbers are staggering. Um, there is no way one can calculate the number of books that come out every year. Um, UNESCO estimates that 2.2 million new titles are added to the shelf globally each year. 2.2 million books. Now, this is only those with the ISBN number. There are the self-publishing books. There are those uh, books that are published in vernacular languages. Uh, that doesn't, doesn't hit the mainstream at all. Uh, for local circulation in remote places. So you can just imagine the number. Um, in US alone, every year 44,000 fiction titles are added. 44,000 fiction titles. One of the things that intrigues me is uh, those kind of books where a writer writes, it takes, I don't know how long it takes to write a book, maybe six months, maybe a year, maybe a few years. Um, Stephen King says he takes three years to write a book. That's how long he takes to write a book. Um, so after all the effort and struggle and time that is invested in writing a book, you know, uh, sometimes the message of the book is to challenge the readers. Where you open a book and you can't get through it. You don't know what's going on. There is no linear progression of the plot. The plot jumps all over time, all over time, all over uh, the space, time and space is not coherently arranged. Sometimes the meaning is the meaninglessness of the text. There are a lot of fiction like that, intentionally done, postmodern writers like Philip Roth, pick up and read. You don't know what's going on. And even after finished reading, you don't know what went on I mean, in the, in the book. So that's, how, that's the beauty of the book. After spending 400 pages, after reading 400 pages of, of text, there is no meaning the meaninglessness of the text. I believe the Bible is the greatest book written by the greatest author you can ever think of. No one exhausts the riches of this book. But the beauty of it is we have the author with us, teaching us, helping us understand what every word, what every theme means. He wants to highlight every little thing that he wants us to see in his book. That's the beauty of the Bible. And as, he, as we spend time with him and his word, you know, he graciously gives us eyes to see what he wants us to see, the glorious truths that are layered in the pages of his word. And today we're going to study one of those passages that runs across the scriptures. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's a single thread uh, that, you know, that, that, he wants, that we want to pick up today. Uh, from the origin of man to the 21st century, you know, it applies to us. To the end of time, kingdoms have come and gone, generations, cultures, but still, this idea, this theme prevails. Amidst all the human drama, the ebb and flow of life, God is doing something beautiful here. If you turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 13 to 22. John, chapter 2, verse 13 to 22. We will read this passage where Jesus is in the temple. Verse 13 onwards. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of carts, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. 
and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that, what, that Jesus had spoken. Pray. Only Father, we look to you this morning. Lord, for grace, for mercy, Lord, as we open your word. Thank you for the privilege you've given us, Lord, to be together this morning. Lord, the joy to sing your praises, Lord, in your house, to remember your goodness, your mercies, Lord, in our lives, Lord. Lord, to affirm your faithfulness in our lives, O oh Father. Lord, we pray that, Lord, that you'll be here with us and you would minister to us this morning according to our needs. Let your spirit move in this place, dear Lord. Give us eyes to see what you want us to see. Give us ears to listen. Give us hearts to obey your Father. Quicken our understanding, dear Lord, and help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Give me your grace and mercy as well, dear Lord, and we give you all glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. If you have played chess, then you know every move is intentional. Every little move, every one of them has a purpose. Every move has layers of meaning. And uh, you don't move for the sake of moving. And people say you can lose a game of chess in the first five or six moves. They say control the center. You know, the D4, D5, E4, E5, those are the most you know, important uh, blocks there. And the way you control the center is going to define your game. So every move is layered with meaning. There are grandmasters who claim that they can see 10 moves ahead. In their mind, they can visualize, it seems. 15 moves ahead sometimes, 20 moves ahead. And we have the greatest grandmaster here, the ultimate grandmaster, making a move that has layers of meaning, layers of significance across cultures, across generations. We're going to focus on the idea of Jesus in the temple. Jesus in the temple. It was Passover time, and it was the customary of the Jews to go to the temple. And this was a custom instituted by God himself. And the temple was at the heart of the Jewish religion. And they had Jewish synagogues all over the place. And wherever 10 or 15 can be together, they can start a synagogue where they can go read scriptures and uh, pray and exhort each other. So those are the synagogues. But the temple is a place where the sacrifice took place. So they have to come to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. And the priests all sacrificed the animals for the forgiveness of the people. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, he claims that uh, he estimates that around 2 million people, close to 2 million people gathered 
in the temple courts, it seems, during the Passover time. Just imagine that crowd. I don't know if the roads were built to handle that kind of a traffic. The Basel, a small town, I don't know how big Jerusalem was, was a city, but we don't know how big it was. Two million people at the same time, maybe for a week, maybe for a few days, people from all over the place. The bustle, the city would come to life. Imagine the temple itself, built by Herod the Great, a huge complex, an architectural wonder, huge boulders that sits atop the hill. Must have been sight to see. Such an impressive spectacle there. People lining up to enter into the courts of the temple. Imagine the water system for two million people. This is a temple on a hill. They got to pump water up the hill. Imagine the drainage. They had thousands of cattle ready to be sacrificed. So there was this whole enterprise happening there, impressive management there, a huge undertaking. So from a distance, when this was happening, maybe the black smoke would have darkened the sky. The smell of burnt flesh in the air, people dragging their families, little ones around, waiting to go, waiting for their turn. The priests in their long robes, pious faces, busy with their activities, sweating it out. They would have added to the somber mood of the temple. Something serious is happening here. Maybe there were prayers happening. Maybe there were songs. Maybe there were recitals. And if you were a religious person, this was an impressive sight. A beautiful spectacle that would have pleased you. But Jesus wasn't. He was not impressed with any of this. And this is a moment of divine intervention. Jesus had a ministry. He could have just gone and preached and then went about his town, went about his, you know, his, his way, doing miracles and doing his own little thing. When the other people, the crowds, went to the temple to sacrifice, but Jesus goes to the temple and then he's not pleased and he shows his displeasure with uh, what was happening. So this was a moment of divine intervention. Jesus with a whip. Now, when we have uh, portraits of Jesus at home, usually like we have beautiful paintings with Jesus with little lambs, with, with kids. Those are the images that we have in our houses. Maybe Jesus uh, with his disciples, the Last Supper, that's a famous painting that we have, right? But we've never seen, I've never seen Jesus with a whip in his hand as an as a image that has been portrayed. But that's the image we have here in, in this passage. He has a, a whip in his hand, and he goes and he disturbs the entire proceeding there. This was not an impulsive reaction. He takes the time to make a whip. Did he whip the people? Was there violence involved? Did he lose it? Is that what's happening here? If there were violence, the temple guards would have been there. We don't see any of that happening there. We don't see people getting hurt. We don't see any of that. But what we want to focus here is Jesus with a whip is a powerful image there. And I would like to argue that it is an act of love. 
more than anything else. He was not railing against the poor business practices, poor business decisions there. He's not arguing that you got to go give a better deal to the poor peasants. You got to run some Passover specials. This is bad deal. That was not the intention. He tells them in verse 16, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus was coming down against the whole system, the whole trade that was going on, not just one particular stall, not just one particular vendor, all of it. Now just think, if there are no animals, if they don't sell animals, how will the sacrifices go on? How will the priests fulfill their priestly responsibilities? How will the people atone for their sins? And one can even argue, if you don't make money, how will you take care of this beautiful temple? Of course, they have the temple tax, but this is extra money there. But Jesus was coming against the whole system. He was interrupting the entire proceeding, criticizing the establishment. Jesus opposed it because he knew the real purpose of this temple. Why it was built in the first place? What was his intention? The purpose behind this? If you read the Synoptic Gospel in, uh, in Matthew 21, Matthew 21, 13, it says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. It had a whole different purpose than what's happening here. A temple was supposed to be the meeting place between God and man. And we see this idea in Exodus chapter 25 onwards, where for the first time, God institutes this tabernacle, this idea where there is a place for God and man to meet. If you know the history of the Jews, for 400 years they were slaves in Egypt. Just imagine 400 years. Generations were born in slavery. They did not do anything better. People were born in slavery and died in sla as slaves. The people of God. And God graciously hears their cries, their groaning, their mourning, and then he sends Moses, he delivers them. And one of the reasons Moses tells us, people, God wants his people to go to worship him. That's the reason he gives to the Pharaoh. Let my people go so that they can go and worship the God. And if you go home and read Exodus, you will see for the first time after the deliverance from the Egyptian armies, for the first time you see the Israelites gathering together and singing and worshiping God. For the first time, a corporate worship happens. People of the redeemed sing of his goodness. And God institutes, tells Moses, build me a tabernacle, a portable one. They can carry this tabernacle wherever as they journeyed on. But this is a place where I want to be with my people. My people can come and commune with me. Imagine 400 years of tears and slavery and oppression and bondage. And we have a God who cares. He wants to come and comfort and minister to the people. 
And if you read Exodus 25 to 40, 15 chapters, God gives Moses specific instructions, every little detail, how long the wall should be, the structure of the tabernacle, everything. It is not just the building. He, takes, he gives meticulous instructions as to how it has to be done. And what has to be inside? Who, who has to do what? All those things, detailed instructions has been given. But the most beautiful thing for me was the glory of God rested on this tabernacle. A cloud, a pillar of fire, glory of God, a, a pillar of fire rested on the tabernacle. Just imagine going to church to see this pillar of fire resting on the tabernacle. An awe-inspiring spectacle. That was the idea. That was the sanctuary of God. Where people went there to commune with their God, to worship their God, to sing of his praises. To pay for their sacrifices as well. The glory of God was there. And we know what happened after that. People sinned. They lost it. They lost their way. They rebelled against God. They were taken as captives. And then comes Solomon. He builds his temple for the first time. A fixed place. A huge structure. Magnificent structure. Lavishes, lavishly built temple. And we know what happened to that. The Babylonians, the Babylonians they come and destroy the temple. And after many years of captivity in foreign lands, again, Nehemiah comes. And then that's when the, temp the second temple is being built. A very modest structure, very, very modest structure when compared to Solomon's temple. But there is a temple there where people can go and, and pray and offer sacrifices to God. But what I want to focus is when the temple was rebuilt, they lost the Ark of the Covenant. That was lost. And there was no glory of God. Shekinah glory was not there. But they had a temple. It was more a prayer of repentance than anything else happening there. The temple was just a foreshadowing of the real tabernacle that God was preparing through his son, Jesus Christ. The temple, the meeting place between God and man where Jesus becomes the temple. So when we see here Jesus going to the temple, this was a fulfillment of that foreshadowing that was happening. The whole idea of God's sanctuary, the tabernacle of God where God and man can come together, a meeting place, and that was being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself makes this, this, he kind of extends this image where he says, I am the temple. When the Jews says, ask for a sign, and under what authority you do these things, he says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And he was referring to his body. I am the temple. I am the meeting place where sinners can come and meet God, their God. He is the temple, the ultimate meeting place between God and man, between God and the sinful people. Because without him, there is no relationship with God. 
When people sinned, they lost the truth. The Ark of the Covenant had the commandments, the, ta- the stone tablets that were given by God himself. That was lost. And Jesus comes to restore. He is the truth, the embodiment of truth. And the people lost the glory of God as well. And if you read Hebrews 1, 3, there is this beautiful verse. Hebrews 1, 3, it says, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The glory that was lost is being restored in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God. You know, if you read John, John is writing to the Jews and the first few chapters you will see he is kind of emphasizing this idea of Jesus is the better one. He begins with John the Baptist. Jesus is greater than the John the Baptist. He is greater than your, your prophets, greater than Abraham, greater than Jacob, greater than all the Jewish customs and rituals because they all point to Jesus. Back in those days when the glory of God rested on the tabernacle, it was a cloud, a pillar of fire. But he, we here we have better. God himself is there to reveal the nature of God in all his glory. Another beautiful words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the face of God. The way we understand the word God, suddenly all abstractions disappear. We don't have to define who God is. We don't have to use our imagination or creativity to define who God is, to discover who God is. We see in the person of Jesus Christ. He is there to reveal who God is, the heart of God, the nature of God, his mercy, his grace, his truth, the purposes that he has for us. All that is revealed in the personal ministry of Jesus Christ. You want to see God? Look at Christ. The man-made gods, they have their limitations. We have so many of them. Many religions have many gods, but we can only create gods based on our limitations because our imagination is limited. The attributes that we give to God is limited because we can, our thoughts are limited in in some capacity. Jesus came to reveal the glory of God, the riches of his love, the infinite wisdom, his marvelous grace, the eternal purposes for lives, plans to prosper us, to bless us, to reveal the heart of his love. He is slow to anger. His mercies endures forever. And finally, we can run to him and find comfort and refuge in the arms of Jesus.
the prodigals can come home confidently and embrace his love and be embraced by his love and call him our heavenly father. Your past is forgiven and he is our salvation. The king is in his court. The priest is in his temple. But sadly, you know, the religious people there, they didn't recognize him. They were busy with their activities. They were busy with their religiosity. They were lost in their religion. They didn't realize who God is. There is only two options here. Either we recognize him as our king and bow down before him and crown him with many crowns or we bow down before ourselves. We become gods. We are the masters of our lives. Either he is our Lord or we are our own lords. Master of my, my life. I'm the captain of my soul, master of my faith. I run my life on my terms. It's a sad thing. Instead of gazing his beauty, adoring his wonderful name, people were lost in their rituals. There was no praise. There was no recognition. There was no worship. They were satisfied with their own customs and traditions. Their eyes, their eyes were blind. Their hearts were dead. The bridegroom was there and no one took note of it. Jesus was the man of the hour. He came, he, he came, he, he gave meaning to what they were doing. Outside of him, all their activities had no meaning. The sacrifices, the atonement, everything points to Jesus. They get fulfilled in Jesus and, and what he did on his Calvary. Same thing applies to us. Outside of him, our lives have no meaning. He's the one who gives us meaning. Whatever it is, our actions, outside of him, there is no meaning. It's just meaningless. One after activities, the Sisyphean image, I mean, there's no time to, to talk about that as well. The myth of Sisyphus. Rolling up the boulders every day. The same old life. And one day we just, we just dead. It is God who gives meaning to our actions. He came to his own people and his own rejected him. They were busy with religion. It's a sad spectacle there. Jesus was upset. He, his, his heart of love, he, could, he cannot let that continue. And he comes there to intervene, to disrupt what was happening. On another level, Jesus in the temple. The other layer that also adds to this significance, the church of Jesus is the new temple. We saw Jesus is the temple and then we also have the Jesus, the church of Jesus is the new temple. 
on this rock, I will build my church. Somehow, if we, if we go down this road of where temple signifies the meeting place between God and man, then the church takes the role of the temple where God and sinners, they meet. The church has its role in bringing sinners to God. You know, as Christians, we don't have the cultural baggage of temple rituals. We don't go to Jerusalem. We don't go to holy places. We don't go and celebrate Passover the way Jews celebrated. But the role of church, in some sense, has its role like a temple. This is where God speaks through his temple to the surrounding nations. The role of church as a beacon of light, witnessing the goodness of God, being an ambassador for the truth of God. Because the world has lost the truth. And we are the people of truth. We, have, we are commanded to radiate the glory of Christ. Share the love of God. Literally be the arms of Jesus. So through the work of the church, the worship is restored. And God's name will be glorified. So church is God's idea. His design to carry out his purposes for this world. But the great commission that is given to us, go into all the world and preach, preach to all nations. We preach so that people will come to know the Savior. We preach so that people will become worshipers. Worship will be born in the hearts of people. Witnessing to the goodness of God. Witnessing, declaring what God has done in our lives. Spreading the gospel. If you turn to Revelation chapter 21, 22, verse 22. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. John, once again, he sees a vision of the new Jerusalem. And in that new Jerusalem, the city of God, there is no temple. It says, I saw no temple, Revelation 21, verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There was no temple. There was no need for the temple. So when glorification happens, the final homecoming, there will be this great union between God and man, the bride and the bridegroom. We will be completely free of our sinful nature. There will be no need for a priest to intercede for us. But until that day, the church is called to labor in the kingdom of God, preaching the gospel, witnessing the goodness of God, sharing the love of Christ, praying and ministering to the lost and the hurting. We are called for the kingdom work. Until that happens, we are here for this kingdom. And he uses this imagery of laborers. The harvest is plenty and God is looking for laborers. The church 
is called to be the laborers. How is our labor? Are we laboring? Will we be pleased in our work? What we do as a church? Today, Christianity has degenerated into a self-focused, consumerist religion, often driven by a worldly mindset. Sometimes we want to be more entertained than convicted, more impressed by the shallow spectacle than the glorious gospel. Things that are done for people's applause than for the glory of God. The point is, it is very easy to, to develop a satisfaction of, of fleshly appetites, even in church, rather than focusing on the grandeur of God himself. When we come to church, what wows you? Is it the spectacle or Christ himself? If you want to test yourself, ask this question. I don't know, I read it somewhere, but kind of made me think. Will you be content and feel thoroughly exhilarated of your church service that was without electricity? Just think about that. If there was no electricity, and the church service went on, Will you be satisfied? Will you go home with this wow, sense of wow, feeling exhilarated? There are no lights, there are no killer music, there is no smoke, there is no audio visuals, all those theatrics. The only thing is our voices, God-given voices, and the strength, the hearts, to worship him, to sing out, to cry out, to be thankful. Lift up our voices, remembering his goodness, celebrating his love, hearing his word. Will that satisfy us? Or are we looking for sensual, indulgence. Something to think about. I'm all for praising God with everything that we've got. But the danger is we are fleshly creatures. It is so easy to get trapped in the fleshly appetites. Let the zeal for God consume his church. That's what Jesus, that's what motivated Jesus to go and do what he did. The zeal for God, the zeal for his church. Verse 17, in the passage that we read, his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. What consumes us? We are consumed one way or another. Something is consuming us. What is consuming us? If you buy a new house or move into a new place, you know, you, you arrange your house, right? You furniture and uh, 
all those things need to be planned and there's a lot of planning and thinking goes into it. Say, for example, just take your living room and you can go home and then check this out. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but um, go home and check this out. Most of your furniture, all right, the seating place will be surrounded or will be focused on the TV. Um, I'm guilty too, right? Uh, that's the most important thing. That's how most of our time is spent. The seating place is focused on the TV. And uh, they even say uh, TV has replaced the fireplace because back in those days, they used to have fireplace, it seems, as the center of the family gathering. Most evenings will be spent around the fireplace as the fire burned and the, music, the crackling of the wood. They told stories and, and enjoyed a good family conversation. But today, the TV has replaced the fireplace. Some houses we have both. TV on top of the fireplace, you know. <laughs> so, but either way, that's what we do. So the TV goes first, and then we arrange our seating positions, and then there are some extra spaces. What do we do there? Maybe an end table, maybe a, you know, a lamp here, maybe a flower vase or, or something to beautify the, the room. Fill out the spaces. The most important parts are taken. Just fill out the spaces with whatever you can, whatever you find. Sometimes I wonder if that's what church has become. We are busy with our lives. The important parts are taken. Let's fill our empty spaces with church. Just a couple hours, hours here, a couple of days here. Just find something to do here and there. The zeal for God consumed him. When someone says, Paul Washer says, when someone says, keep Christ number one, their theology is lacking. It is not Christ is number one in a list of things. He is in a completely other category where there is only one. It is a horrid thing to say he is a part of my life. He is my life. We don't fill empty spaces with God, with church, his kingdom. We are laborers in his kingdom. This is our life. One of the things, one of the things that kind of spoke to me as I was reading on this temple, the idea of temple, what Solomon built, this beautiful, beautiful, magnificent building. But if you think carefully, temple was not Solomon's idea. It is called Solomon's temple, but the idea is David's, his dad. He was the one who envisioned, he was the one who had the desire to build a temple for God. And look what he has done for the temple, for the building of the temple. If you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 14. 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 14. This is what David says to his son Solomon on his deathbed. The last moments of his life. Words of parting wisdom to his son. This is what he says, verse 14. 1 Chronicles 22, verse 14. And he says, with great pains... I have provided for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver, a bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there is so much of it, timber and stone too, I have provided. To these you must add. 
Look what he has done. He wanted to build a temple, and God said, no, your son will build a temple for me. David could have said, all right, God, it's not on me. Let him do it. That's the responsibility you gave to my son. He is going to do it. Not me. But look what he has done. He has been working. And I, the first phrase, it, it kind of struck me. With great pains. He was the king of Israel. But the, to, the, the extent of, to, to the extent to which he went to get those things. 100,000 talents. I was trying to calculate how much that even cost. 100,000 talents of gold. I couldn't find one answer. All I can say is big money. Right? Big money. You think he couldn't afford or find uses for that money? Spend it on his kingdom. Spend it on his palace. Improve his army. The size of his army, the weapons become great. David has taken those things and kept it separate. My God needs this. With great pains, with sacrifice, I have provided for the house of the Lord. The temple that is not going to be called after him. It is always Solomon's temple. He gets no credit whatsoever. But look what he has done. 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond weighing. You can't even measure it. For there is so much of it, timber and stone. I have provided, and to these you must add, there is more to be done. David in his poverty, I can't even understand. You know, this is what he says. What I have done for God, what I have collected for God, this is not enough. He is so much more worthy of this than this. He deserves more. This is not enough. It should be the way for the saints of God too. To consider anything you do for God to be very little. Let us not be impressed with what we are doing. Our sacrifices, our efforts, the things that we do. He is more worthy than anything that we can bring to his, to his sanctuary. Can we go to bed tonight and close our eyes for the last time? Feeling I have done the work of God. The work that was given to me, I have completed it. I have done everything I could do in winning souls. I have been a faithful laborer in his kingdom. Can we say like Paul, I have run the race, I fought a good fight. Or will we have regrets? I wish I have done more. I wish I had been more focused in life. Spent more energy towards his kingdom. And that's what matters in eternity. Not what I do for a living. But that's where my energy is spent. Not my entertainment. The pursuits of life. 
John 9, 4 says, we must work the works of him who sent me. John, oh, Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Let us have the urgency. Move with a sense of purpose. Will it be said of you and me that we wasted the daylight? We just wasted our youth, our energy, our strength. Will we hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of your Lord. Let the zeal for God consume his church. The next level of ramification for Jesus in the temple. So first we saw Jesus is the temple. And then the church of Jesus is the new temple. And then here, under the new covenant, we, the born-again believers, we are the temple of the living God. Our bodies are the temple of the living God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul reminds us, he reminds the believers at the Corinthian church, verse 19, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. Our body becomes the temple of God. Each one of us, people who have been redeemed, their sins washed, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Now in his wisdom, God has called us out of darkness opened our eyes to see the truth, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and has given us a heart to believe, gives us the gift of salvation, gives us hope on eternity. And God wants to meet us in our own broken bodies. It's hard to understand that this great God who dwelt on the tabernacle with the Shekinah glory, the God who, for whom the temple was built with, I don't know how much it cost. It says 188,000 workers worked on it, Solomon's temple. The glory of God, this glorious God, the God who made the heaven and the earth, he is willing to come and meet me in this broken body this broken life, with all my failures, in my brokenness, he still wants to come and be seated at the throne of my life, be king of my life. I am the temple, this Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And under this new covenant, he has given us his glory, the truth in our hearts, and let's not forget, he is building us up as his holy temple. Because he wants to restore worship in our hearts. Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, he talks about the new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. 
never to be lost again. The Ark of the Covenant was lost. But what God is going to do, even better, through the ministry of Jesus Christ, something better, far more better, is going to happen where he will write the, the laws, the truth in our own hearts, which will guide us, which will reveal his ways, his will. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Again, this communion with God, a sinner communes with this holy God. And that's what he's doing in our, each one of our lives. But Paul had to remind the Corinthian church, remember, you are the temple. He had to remind the church who they were and their responsibility to maintain the purity of this temple. Because it is possible to desecrate the temple. The outward success, again, Jesus in the temple, it looked successful, it looked religious. The smell, the smoke, the prayers, the singing, the recantations, the religious spectacle was spot on. It was a happening place, the outward show, shallow obedience. But Jesus saw through it. Will Jesus be pleased in our own worship? Or will he only see the desires of the flesh to be glorified? A kind of ritualistic religion, empty prayers, a religious show that is meant to impress others, a hypocritical life, living and doing church for the applause of men. There is no truth. There is no brokenness controlled by the passions of this world. No zeal for his kingdom. In his book, Christless Christianity, the author writes, my concern is that we are getting dangerously close to the place in everyday American church life where the Bible is mined for relevant quotes but is largely irrelevant on its own terms. God is used as a personal resource rather than known, worshipped, and trusted. Jesus Christ is a coach with a good game plan for our victory rather than a savior who has already achieved it for us. Salvation is more a matter of having our best life now than being saved from God's judgment by God himself. And the Holy Spirit is an electrical outlet we can plug into for the power we need to be all that we can be. It's a dangerous position. The appearance of a Christian. The king was in his court, but there was no worship. Worship has been replaced by worldly pursuits, living for the self, living to fulfill the passions of our flesh. The way of the cross and the way of the world don't intersect. They will always go in opposite direction. We cannot have both. The closer we go to Christ, the, the more we walk in the way of the cross, the farther we get away from the world, from our own flesh. We need to be sanctified. 
strive for holiness. It is a war with their own flesh. Because our fleshly nature doesn't want to obey. It wants to be entertained. It is self-centered. It is self-seeking. Always looking after the comforts of my, me, mine, and myself. Three things I love. It's all about me. Zeal for holiness. It's not an option. It is not good advice. It is essential. It is the mark of a Christian. Charles Spurgeon once said, holiness is another name for salvation. Think of that. Holiness is another name for salvation. We are separated. We are delivered from the works that produce death. We cannot trifle with this truth. We cannot hide behind our theology, our religiosity, our Christianism. Deep down in our hearts, do we have the desire to please him in every way, in every aspect of our lives? Desire to honor him, desire to glorify him, desire to do his will. In every human interaction, in every relationship, Christ will be glorified. In every habit, in every waking hour, it is all Jesus. The king is in the house. And we will worship him. And he will be the king of our, our lives. As a temple of the holy God, let us be zealous for holiness. Jesus with the whip is a kind of a cleansing metaphor. He cleanses the temple. An act of love, maybe a tough love, an act of love. The Pharisees opposed to Jesus. They came and challenged him on what authority you do this. Give us a sign. Sorry, give us a sign. Show us a sign. Who gave you the power to do this? Because you are coming against the system, the establishment, the powers, the high priest. Who are you to do this? They challenged Jesus. Maybe the whip was the language the cattle understood. Maybe the whip was for the animals. And they failed to see the outstretched arms of Jesus. The loving invitation for the sinners to come and be saved, to see who he was, to receive what he offers. They rejected him. They opposed him. But our cry is like that of David. Now when David sinned, the cry of his heart, create in me a clean heart. I cannot do it on my own. You got to do this. Because my sinful heart is a rebellious heart. It cannot bow down to the king. It cannot bow down to worship. I want a clean heart. A heart that will desire his holiness. A heart that will desire him. Will respect him. Will recognize him. Accept him as my savior. And that is something that he gives. A heart that would long for his fellowship. That would delight in his presence. That would want to commune with, with God. Not a cop when things you know, get convenient. 
as a temple of the Holy God, let us be zealous for his holiness in our own lives. Be zealous for holiness. There is no time, but there's one more thing I just want to point out. The word saint. Now, Paul uses this saint, uh, this word saint, over 60 times in his epistles. Philippians 4.21. Philippians 4.21, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Again and again, he uses the word saint. You know, culturally, we have understood saint differently. But in the Bible, in the Old Testament, St. Paul uses the word saint much differently. Anyone who is washed in the blood of Christ is a saint. Because he uses the word saint to refer to the Christians, to the believers of the church. Sixty times he uses the word saint. Who is a saint? A person who's been washed in the blood of Jesus, who has been separated from sin unto God for holy purposes. He is a saint or she is a saint. We are the saints. Look around. Just look around this room. We are broken. We are sinful. We are suffering. But in Christ, we are saints of God. He gives us his righteousness. That's the beauty of what he's doing. He is building us up. His temple for his glory. Where God is there. Where worship is there. He's going to write his laws in our hearts. Give us his glory. We're going to be partakers of his glory. In all our brokenness. We are called to partake in his glory. It's a beautiful thing. Let us be careful to walk worthy of the calling that God has given us. One last thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Two things. We are beholding the glory of God with unveiled face and are being transformed. We are not transformed all of it at, at one time. We are being transformed. Every day, every moment of our lives, Christ is working in our lives. He is cleansing his temple. In his love, in his mercy, in his grace, he is cleansing his temple for his glorious purposes. And what is the purpose? So that we will be transformed into the same image like Christ. That we will become like him one day. We're not finished products. But he is doing this glorious work in our lives. He who has started will finish. And we can trust him. So don't be content with your religious service, religious actions. We are to be transformed like Christ. Live like Christ. Love like Christ. Love what Jesus loves. Hate what Jesus loves. Pursue what Jesus wants. 
Live for his name, for his glory, do his will. And don't settle for anything less than that. And we cry out to God to grow in holiness. Pray for his refining fire that would clean every dross, every uncleanness from our lives. Mourn for the lingering sins. Repent. Make war with your flesh. Fight your battles like a good soldier. Every day is a, is a war with your own flesh. Like a good soldier, fight. But above, above all, let us remember God is at work in our lives. He is building his temple. The last verse that I read, 2 Corinthians 3.18, the verse ends like this. For this comes the transformation, this conforming to the image of Jesus. That comes, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It doesn't come from us, from our efforts. We are helpless. But it is the work of the Lord. He is working in our lives. With his power, he is transforming us. And that is the hope we have. And that is the comfort we have. That in all our brokenness and our failures, that God will finish what he has started in our lives. Praise him. Let's praise him. Let's praise God in his temple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for your glorious purpose in our lives, Lord. Thank you for the truth, what you've done in our lives, what you've begun, the, the work of salvation. Thank you for calling us out of darkness. Thank you for opening our eyes to see you as our Savior, the light that has shone in our, in our hearts. Thank you for everything you've done for us, the cross, for not giving up on us, for working in our lives every moment, every day, dear Lord, transforming us, sanctifying us, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to guide us to work in our lives. Give us the desire to long for you, Lord, to grow in holiness, to grow in love, to be like our Savior, to do the work of our Savior in our lives, Lord, to be faithful to the ministry, to be faithful to the calling that with, with which you have called us, O oh Father, that your name will be glorified. Help us, Lord. We commit ourselves into your hands, our struggles, our weaknesses, our failures into your hands. We pray that your your presence will fill us. Your strength will uphold us. That you would go before us, Lord. And you would keep us. And you will sustain us. And help us to, to believe in your promises, in your faithfulness. And commit ourselves to your to matchless hands of Father. And to your wisdom. Let your name alone be glorified here. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.